Before today's episode, I have a little programming note. In the episode that follows, I mentioned a podcast episode done earlier on Nuka McGrath. However, after looking over the podcast page to find a link for it, I realized that the episode was not there. Sometime when we switched over podcasting services, it was deleted. So along with this episode, there's also going to be a re-release of the Nuka McGrath episode previously done. So check that out if you want to know more about him and more about McGrath Park. Welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. On today's episode, we are going to talk in-depth on something that I've touched on in other episodes, such as the Amazon Knitting Company and the episode on Nuka McGrath, that is, the Industrial Bonus Fund, which would become the Chamber of Commerce here in Muskegon. This one fund, as we shall see, became one of the biggest influencers in the health and growth of Muskegon as a city, nearly as much as the lumbering industry that preceded it. The Industrial Bonus Fund grew out of an idea that Nuka McGrath and other business leaders such as Charles Hackley and Thomas Hume had. By the late 1880s, most could see that lumbering was on the decline and that something had to be done to revitalize Muskegon, much less make it grow and prosper. A plan was created in 1893 where Nuka McGrath would sell a plot of his land in the lakeside area to the city for $100,000, well over its actual worth. To raise money for this purchase, the city would pass a bond which was, quote-unquote, technically for the purchase of this land and to turn the land into a park. But in reality, McGrath would take the money and give it to the Chamber of Commerce, which is what this group of businessmen formed. Part of the deal, though, was that the city had to spend $5,000 in the next 10 years on the park. Remember this stipulation as it will come up later in the episode. This capital would allow the newly formed Chamber of Commerce to offer incentives to industries to relocate or to expand their businesses to Muskegon. The first target area of the chamber was to contact business ties in Chicago and see if they could encourage any to move to Muskegon. Negotiations took place with several different companies. The first company to officially move to Muskegon with the help of the bonus fund was the Lozier Tannery Company in 1894. To entice them to move, the chamber offered them $10,000 from the fund if they employed 100 workers after a period of two years. This was to become a standard deal for many companies over the years. Unfortunately, in part due to a fire, this business would fail to meet the goals set out by the contract. We will come back to the Lozier Tannery and its failure in a bit. In the years following 1894, many other industries were brought to Muskegon with bonus fund money. A 1912 Chronicle article describes the bonuses offered to various companies and if they met the bonus. I would like to go over those now because the list is staggering. In 1895, the Amazon Knitting Company arrived in Muskegon with a bonus of $24,000 to employ 475 people, a condition they met and would far exceed in coming years. The Central Paper Company arrived in 1899 with a bonus of $10,000 to employ 100 workers. In 1912, they had 300 working for them. 1900 brought both the Moon Desk Company and Shaw Walker Company with the 10,100 employee deals. 1902, Superior Manufacturing Company came to Muskegon with the same deal. 1903, Southern Muskegon Cutlery Company, which was enticed by offers of a factory, the Atlas Parlor Furniture Company for the 10,000 for 100 deal, and the Racine Boat Manufacturing Company, which got $20,000 with the promise to employ 200. Of these three last ones, only the Racine Boat Works achieved long-term success. 
The other two had to pay back money to the chamber after failures to meet their contracts. 1904 also saw mixed success with the Linder Machine Company getting a $4,000 deal to employ 40 workers. By 1912, they were still in business and employed 125. The Hill Independent Manufacturing Company received $10,000 to employ 120, slightly more than others were asked, and by 1912 they were still in business but employing only 100. The last addition in 1904 was the American Fuse Company, which received $20,000 towards the factory, but had the unique stipulation that they had to pay $100,000 out in wages in the period of seven years, which would amount to around 200 employees worth. This business ultimately failed. However, the chamber received its factory, which allowed them to use it to entice future industries, so not a terrible loss overall. 1905 would be a huge year for the bonus fund, with two Muskegon staples signing contracts to move to Muskegon. 1905 brought the Muskegon Brunswick Bolt Calendar Company, better known just as Brunswick. They were enticed with a bonus of $50,000 with the promise to employ 500 which by 1912 they had over doubled, employing 1,150, and they still expanded from there. Continental Motors also came to Muskegon in 1905. They were given $12,500 and were required to employ 125, a number which by 1912 they had shattered, employing some 1,150 workers. 1909 saw the Henry Motor Car Company arrive in Muskegon, with $9,800 given to them by the chamber for the purchase of a site for their factory as long as they employed 150 workers. This company would fail, but the chamber was given the building in the deal which maintained a worth greater than the original investment, so overall a victory. In total between all these businesses, the Chamber of Commerce would invest $200,000. However, through taxation of these new businesses between their start date and 1913, and some money paid back to the fund by failed businesses, the city had received $330,000 for a total profit of $130,000. Not a bad investment. What also needs to be factored in, though, is the extra tax income that came because of all the workers' wages and support industries that sprang up to bolster these industries such as Sealed Power, CWC, and various foundries like Lakey. Tax values also rose sharply on property. One city assessor remarked how prior to the fund, in just one section of town, he counted 31 empty houses, which was the norm for the other parts of town as well. But by 1902, he claimed there were only 20 empty houses in the entire city. Tax rules do support this as well, with tax value being near $4 million prior to the fund, but after jumping up to $12 million. It was not all smooth sailing, though, for the fund. Remember earlier when I said to remember how the money was given by McGrath on the stipulation that the city spent $5,000 turning it into a park? Do you also remember when I said we would come back to the failure of the Losher Tannery? Well, these two met up in a trial that occurred in 1906, when the chamber was suing the tannery to get the $10,000 bonus fund money back as the tannery had not met its requirements to employ 100 workers. Losher Tannery countered with that the fund money was obtained by illegal means and that the park deal was really just a pretense to get the bond for the bonus fund, and the people of Muskegon had been defrauded. Thus, it would not have to repay this fraudulently obtained money. And you have to admit, they did kind of have a point. Remember how $5,000 was to be spent on upgrading the park? Well, if you've heard my episode on Newcomb McGrath, you know that that $5,000 wasn't fully invested into the park until 1917, a full 11 years after this trial and 24 years after the original proposal of McGrath. So yeah, this does kind of sound like the park was just a pretense to obtain funds. 
To make matters worse, the tannery company requested and was granted a trial in Grand Rapids as they thought the community and judges wouldn't be fair, making it more likely that the judge would agree with the tannery on the ruling. Fearing probably rightly that this trial could mean the end for all of the money that had been invested to various industries, the chamber and Loshier tannery came to an agreement with a partial sum being repaid and the fund continuing on. Another issue the fund had, though, was that it just simply ran out. The first time this threat occurred was in 1903. To solve the problem, another Muskegon businessman decided to propose a plan similar to what McGrath had done. D.D. Irwin offered to sell the Lee Ferry Dock to the city at the price of $100,000. This would give the city a public dock area that was near the channel. The city would put the $100,000 bond out to acquire the dock, but then Irwin, once paid, would turn over $97,600 of the money to the chamber for use in the industrial bonus fund, keeping just $2,400 for himself, close to the actual value of the dock. The deal was passed and the fund was replenished. In 1910, efforts were made again to raise money for the fund. This time, instead of going the bond route, the decision was made to try and raise funds by what we today call crowdsourcing. The goal was set at $20,000, and members of the chamber went door-to-door -door at homes and businesses to acquire subscriptions to raise the money. After several months, this method was successful, and the $20,000 goal was met. The Industrial Bonus Fund would continue on for several years, but ultimately ran its course. In total, some 46 industries were brought to Muskegon, with 30 of them being successful in meeting their objectives and 16 failing. However, of the 16 failures, 9 of those had their buildings reused or were purchased by another company that succeeded them. I will sum up today's episode and my thoughts on the bonus fund with a quote from the Chronicle written on November 23, 1899, that seems prophetic today. Quote, when the future historian traces the factors that have worked to make Muskegon the great and prosperous city it is now surely to be, he will make special mention of this park fund and of the wise use of it made by those to whom was given the authority to use it for the benefit of all. End quote. Thank you for listening and have a great day.